This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today and a little later this hour, the Premier Roger Cook with his thoughts on the decision by Alcoa to cut production and also workers, 750 workers at its Quinana refinery a little later this year. Also today, lentil growers here in Western Australia are feeling pretty confident about the year ahead because the Indian market will remain free from tariffs for another year. And we'll get to that shortly before the news headlines at half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. First up today, and for the first time in 14 years, a shipment of Australian sheep has been exported to Saudi Arabia. WA-based company Emanuel Exports recently loaded 5,000 sheep onto the El Masilla at the Fremantle port and the shipment arrived at Damam port over the weekend. Saudi Arabia was historically Australia's largest market for sheep, taking one million head a year at its peak. But it cut off the relationship back in 2012 in response to Australia's strict export regulations. Mark Harvey-Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, how significant is this shipment? Oh, it's incredibly significant, Belinda, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, What good news to start the year with. I think this is a very symbolic shipment for the future of the sheep industry. We've got a government at the moment that's looking to phase out live sheep exports, often on the basis that they use the argument that uh, it's a declining trade, that this clearly flies in the face of that. This is the first shipment we've had in 14 years to a market that demands sheep and is seeking sheep, and they're seeking the best sheep in the world. Uh, And here we are. So what good news for Western Australia's farmers? I mean, it is a small shipment, isn't it? It's 5,000 head of sheep to Saudi Arabia when you consider the usual shipments to the Middle East are around sort of uh, 50,000 head of sheep to certain markets. Oh, absolutely. But I think it's important to put it in perspective that there is that time frame I pointed out there, Belinda. It's the first one in 14 years. Uh, It's an opportunity to make sure the market uh, is uh, fine-tuned, I suppose. And when you haven't done something for a long time, there's always things that uh, you need to sort out. So that's what that's largely about. And, And also this initial shipment, the importer sought a small consignment. So... They're really looking to grow. Uh, It's been received well by the government of the Saudi Arabia. They think the sheep are uh, excellent. Uh, That's the feedback I've received. So uh, I think there's huge opportunity for those volumes to grow very quickly. So all sheep, the 5,000 heads, successfully discharged at the port in Saudi? That's correct. Yeah. Now, the exporter Emanuel Exports has had its challenges in recent times. Animal cruelty charges laid against the company after more than 2,000 sheep died on board the Awasi Express on a shipment from Fremantle Port back in 2017 were only just recently dropped late last year. In light of that, how appropriate is it that it is this exporter being the, the trailblazer reopening this potentially significant market? I think what it points to, Belinda, is the reform of the industry. Uh, As we saw, those charges were dropped 
uh, last year. But I think uh, even more importantly to point out, a couple of years ago, uh, Emanuel's had their licence reinstated because the Administrative Appeals Tribunal uh, and the Australian government who regulates our trade recognised that Emanuel's was a reformed company uh, and it was fit to hold a livestock export licence. And I just think it's uh, tremendous uh, that they are the ones that are taking this opportunity uh, by the horns, so to speak. Uh, and I think it's very symbolic of the reform of the trade. This is not a trade that's lost its social licence. This is not a trade that is not accepted by the community. Uh, and industries can change. And that's what we've done, Belinda. Uh, and so I just think it's tremendous. How much work has gone into this shipment and the reopening of this market? In terms of reopening the market, this is years of work uh, by the industry. Uh, ever since uh, Saudi no longer accepted uh, Australian livestock for because they didn't agree with the SCAS system initially, there has been significant amount of work at the government level, at the industry level, uh, to reopen this trade. And I'm very pleased to say that they are now accepting of Australia's standards around SCAS uh, and are very much looking forward to the opportunities going forward. But is it a, a waste of time in some respect? Because as you referred to earlier, I mean, we're waiting any day now for the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt to respond to the panel's report into the phase-out of the live sheep trade. No, it's not a waste of time at all. Years ago, people might have thought that trying to reopen the Saudi trade was a waste of time. I mean, it is extraordinary, Belinda, that SCAS is something that we do with the cooperation of our trading markets to essentially put in place Australia's standards in those markets. And chipping away at it over a number of years, we are where we are now. And that market has reopened after all that time. So there is always an opportunity. We've got to keep at it. And politics uh, and the circumstances of situations can change. But it's very important that people keep looking ahead and are positive about the opportunities. And Belinda, the trade's not shut down now uh, and it's going great guns. So I think that's really important to remember. So we've got this 5,000 head of sheep that arrived in Saudi. It was over the weekend. Is that right, Mark? Uh, end of last week, over the weekend, it arrived. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. not sure of the exact date. Sorry, Belinda. No, that's okay. So get a rough uh, timeline anyway. But in May of last year, the CEO of the Kuwait Livestock Transport and Trading Company, Osama Boudet, said that the market to Saudi Arabia could be opened from as early as next year. So he was right on the money <laughs> in that respect. But he also said, I think that you know, easily we can be supplying Saudi with one million sheep annually. Do you agree with that figure? I do, I do. And I think, uh, Belinda, in an earlier interview with you, I said we'd have a shipment leaving before the end of the year. So, wow, you uh, were close. <laughs> well, we did leave before the end of the year. so we're, Oh, it we're left. All, uh... yeah, well done to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're, we're striking, heading down the right path. Um, I, Mr. Budai was exactly right. I mean... The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is the biggest importer of sheep in the world. They import uh, circa 8 million sheep per year uh, from a range of markets, a uh, lot of it from North Africa, but also uh, there is some trade out of uh, Romania and other European countries as well. So when you put it in the context that they're importing 8 million sheep, and to date, or for the last 14 years, that hasn't included Australian sheep. And when you put into the uh, equation that Australia's uh, sheep are of such a high quality, they yield well, they're sought after by consumers. I think Mr Budai could be absolutely right. 
Now, as we mentioned, the timing of this shipment is interesting considering the Minister is expected to soon release details of the phase-out of the live sheep trade. Have you got any intel on that, Mark, in terms of the, the timing of that response? No, still no idea of that, Belinda, which is disappointing because I don't think it's uh, very transparent. Uh, when I had a chat to you before Christmas, I I was hopeful the government might uh, give producers a, an early Christmas present and say they're reversing their policy, but our position still remains that. The only viable outcome from this process is a reversal of the policy. We will have to wait and see how the government chooses to respond to the panel's report, and indeed, uh, we'll have to wait and see what the panel said, but certainly my uh, understanding or prediction around what the panel would have advised the Minister is that this is a huge undertaking if they want to bite it off, and uh, surely the government is questioning whether it's necessary because most people would say it's not. So as each day goes by, does that make you increasingly nervous? It's, it's the same paradigm we were in when this government came and uh, was elected, Belinda. At the end of the day, what we need to focus on is the fact that the trade is continuing uh, and indeed growing, uh, as we've been talking about today. So, no, it doesn't make me nervous. I think it's just a, a very clear reflection of the fact that this whole issue is entirely based on politics. It's a political issue. Uh, it's not based on facts. If it was based on evidence, they would have reversed this policy already. And that's disappointing because basically agriculture is being treated as a political plaything. Uh, and that's very disappointing, and that's why we've got the whole sector united against this policy. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see, Belinda. That's all we can do, uh, and we will be fighting it every step of the way. Mark, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Belinda. Thanks very much. Mark Harvey Sutton. He is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. With the news today that for the first time in 14 years, a shipment of Australian sheep has been exported to Saudi Arabia. So the WA-based company, Emanuel Exports, loaded 5,000 sheep just towards the end of last year onto the Al Masilla at the Fremantle port. And that shipment of 5,000 sheep arrived at Damam port over the weekend. Quarter past 12 here on The Country Hour. Well, the WA sheep industry is anxiously waiting for the Federal Agriculture Minister's response to the panel's report on the phase-out of the live sheep trade. The panel provided its report with advice and recommendations to Murray Watt on the 25th of October. So he's had it for, well, close to three months now. Stephen Bolt is Director of the Livestock Collective. Stephen, what do you make of the wait for the Minister's response? Oh, look, for for growers and, and the wider sheep industry, it's... You know, it's concerning how long it's taking to um, to release this report because, you know, the whole industry is sort of in limbo at the moment waiting for this report to be released. Uh, although I will say that I'm, I'm certainly not surprised because of the complexity uh, of the supply chain and the, the, the wider impact that this will, any decision will have on our industry I'm not surprised that it's taking uh, a long time to deliver the report. And what sort of implications does it have for producers, Stephen, as they sort of wait for the Minister's response to the panel's report? I mean, what sort of decisions need to be made as soon as, you know, that response is released? 
Well, I think growers have started making decisions, you know, right from the time of this announcement from the, the minister. Growers have started to look at their whole business structure, how their sheep enterprise fits into to their whole farming operation. So there's been decisions made and, you know, people are certainly really concerned about, you know, the seasonal conditions and and what they'll do without live export in their business. So it, it's such an important tool for, for growers in Western Australia. And I think that is what is so complex about this. The, you know, I think we saw with the New Rock report the financial impact this will have on regional communities and uh yeah it's it's going to have devastating consequences whatever the decision is made by government so what sort of decisions can you give us an idea list off a few decisions that have already been made by some producers well producers are, are looking to you know they're looking to reduce sheep numbers so they've sold down either their u base uh, a lot of growers have made decision not to make use this coming season. Uh, there's been change to, you know, maybe to their structure of, of merino and crossbred um, matings. But, you know, there's certainly that where growers are looking to, to reduce sheep or, or get out of the sheep industry altogether because the uncertainty just um, is, is too hard for for growers to deal with. Stephen, do you think the time that it's taking suggests that, you know, it is being given, you know, the due attention that it does deserve? Uh, You know, for me, this is something that government actually should have done before they actually went about announcing that they were going to phase out the industry. I think government went into announcing this without going and, and having a look at the financial impact it'll have on rural and regional WA. I think that they are completely, uh, they were completely unaware of how great a reach the sheep industry has throughout the regional communities and what the impact will be. So I don't think that they ever thought we'd see such a, a change of sentiment, which we've seen, you know, the prices have collapsed in WA as a result of the loss of confidence within the WA sheep market. And having said that, and now with the government, you know, realising the domino effect of a decision like this? I mean, are you hopeful that the outcome may be slightly different than, than a phase-out or you, you think they're going to stick to the phase-out plan? Oh, look, I, I don't think that they um, should be proceeding with a phase-out at all. I think we've seen Roger Cook come out strongly uh, in support of the WA sheep industry. Uh, we've seen, you know, many representatives of the sheep industry calling for government to, um, to to walk away from this phase out because it's not supported by the science. Uh, we've seen that we've been able to successfully deliver sheep into our Middle Eastern markets. We've just delivered sheep into the Saudi market for the first time since 2012, which is a um, fantastic result where we've actually got a real uh, opportunity to actually grow the sheep industry, grow the export market out of Western Australia. So you won't be surprised then if the Minister Murray Watt stands up and says, actually, we've had a really good look at this and uh, this industry does deserve a future. Oh, look, I don't know that that'll be the words coming from Murray Watt, but, uh, you know, I think from from Western Australia and and from, you know, the WA government, uh, we're strongly pushing uh, for, for the federal government to reconsider this phase out and uh, to actually have a complete change of policy. Stephen, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda.
Stephen Bolt. He's the director of the Livestock Collective. And I did actually get in touch with the Minister Murray Watts media advisor earlier today and, and just text and said, you know, is there any timeline on when to expect the sheep live X phase out response? Uh, I haven't heard anything back yet. I can tell he's read the message though at 8.46am this morning. So I haven't heard a peep since. Maybe he's very busy today and we'll get back tomorrow. But it'd be nice to get a bit of a sense of uh, the timeline for when that might happen. 21 past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, lentil growers can now plant this year's crop with confidence now that the Indian market will remain free from tariffs for another year. Before 2022, lentils were slugged with a 30% import duty, which was scheduled to be reinstated in March. But just before Christmas, the Indian government advised Australia the tariff-free status will continue until 2025. Peter Wilson is the Pulse Council Chair with Grains Australia. He welcomes the news and also appreciates the balancing act the Indian Prime Minister is trying to perform. Narendra Modi has been trying to... He's got a very, very difficult line to hold. You know, they've got 1.2, 1.3 billion people to keep nourished but you've got an enormous amount of that population base based rurally that work on farms, that own farms, that run farms. And, of course, uh, locally they produce, I think it's about 22 or 23 million tonnes of pulses locally. And, of course, the big two are desi chickpeas, about 10 or 11 million tonnes, and pigeon peas, about 2.5 to 3 million tonnes. So they're the, they're the big games in town. And so clearly they were trying to provide a level of support and comfort to those desi chickpea growers. And they also had some tariffs on pigeon peas as well. So they were trying to protect local producers. But I think they recognise that, you know, if the monsoon falters a little bit or you see prices in other commodities ebb and flow, that does change area sown to, to pulses and that can deliver, you know, lower than expected output. And that's what they're trying to do is, uh, is manage those um, those shortfalls by allowing imports inside windows where it actually has a reasonable impact in keeping local price inflation at a targeted level. So, But they recognise they've got to provide other producers globally with a decent amount of time to be able to react. And so they've done that with lentils by providing you know, the window first quarter 2025. It does mean both Australian and Canadian lentil producers will see it in 2024 with a reasonable level of confidence that they'll, you know, they'll have India as a market at the end of the season. What about other pulses? Um, I'm thinking about crops suited to broad parts of WA. Is there still restrictions in India on chickpea? Yeah, so we still have a sit well in real terms, it's probably 66%. Of tariffs, so yes, it's uh, India's a, a no-fly zone for uh, for desi chickpeas and kabuli chickpeas, and we watch that very closely. And of course, we're very fortunate, you know. And I'll just give a plug here: Grains Australia is, is well supported by GRDC, and that allows us to have people like John Ackerman and his market access team that's working really, really hard on maintaining markets, but also opening new markets. And so we are spending a lot of time working with people in our mission in, in Delhi 
and they're working with their government counterparts and we continue to to encourage and to press the Indian government on chickpeas because we know how important having access to that Indian market is for our Australian desi chickpea producers. And I know in your region they grow some desi chickpeas or have done and I think it would be great if we could get that desi chickpea industry back up and running again. But we do need... We do need India, I think, as part of the destination markets because desis, unlike red lentils, we're, we're largely, you know, looking at India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and markets like the UAE, which goes up into the Iranian market. They're the main destination markets for desi. So you take India out and it's it's quite a big hole. And so what's the situation with peas, Peter? So we think this is largely in response to a fairly inflated level of prices around pigeon peas they're encouraging yellow peas to come in and be part of that suite of yellow pulses that might be available in either dal or whole form to substitute for both desis and pigeon peas so what they've done is they've allowed for product that can be cleared customs by the end of march this year to come in duty free which which is a great result but it, it's it doesn't give us a lot of time will allow some Australian dun peas or Casper type peas to move into the Indian market, but it probably doesn't change the the needle in terms of area that might be sown on the promise that that might be extended through to say the lentil period in the first quarter of 2025. So so we'll be we'll be talking to the government to see what the prospects might be that they might extend that window for peas, yellow peas. And I would expect as we get into February, we may hear more from the Indian government. It's a great development, but it's a short window for people to take advantage of it. But, you know, I know there's some really good quality peas grown in the Esperance region that may be able to take advantage of that window. Grains Australia Pulse Chair Peter Wilson with Lucinda Jose. 27 past 12. Shortly an update from the newsroom with the news headlines and then we'll take a look at the weather around Western Australia. Speaking of the weather, the state's dairy industry is banking on early rain for the 2024 season. It's not the only industry hoping for that. A long, dry spring has left dairy farmers short of feed and on the hunt for alternative sources. Ian Noakes is the Dairy Council president with WA Farmers and says the industry needs an early break. 2023, we had a pretty good start. Uh, I think um, everybody's pretty comfortable with that, but from September onwards, the rain really dried up, and especially along the west coast anyway, um, most places were pretty well down on their silage and particularly hay yields, so there's a, there's a lack of forage. Compared to the previous two years, which were good from way to go, really. So how is that going to impact farmers um, in April when the, the season begins? Are they going to need to look to, to find feed elsewhere, or are you hoping for an early start to the season? I think everybody would be hoping for an early start of the season. Um, yeah, the opportunities to buy feed elsewhere are pretty limited, um, especially forage-wise. Um, my understanding is hay supplies are under uh, extreme demand and there's not much out there. So um, if you haven't got it now, you may not be able to get it. And so the break of the season will be pretty crucial, I think, for, for a lot of people. Hopefully it is April and not the end of May. If it does roll through late, uh, is that going to have a significant impact on, I guess, the profitability of the the season uh, and directly impact the producers? Yeah, I definitely impact profitability substantially. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I guess one way of trying to limit the damage would be to milk some less cows. So 
but the current situation is it's damn hard to milk less cows because they're hard to get booked into a, to get them killed at an abattoir. So that's causing a few issues for farmers now as well. Being short of forage and then ha- having to hold on to animals that you don't want to, you prefer to get rid of. So it's been a pretty tight period, actually. Looking back over the past two to three years, how's the demand for milk fed? Is it, is it increasing as we go year to year? And is that demand expected to increase in 2024? I think we've reached the, we're producing approximately 340 million litres and that's sort of reaching the point of about what's required. That's my view. I'm not sure there's a lot of demand for any more. So um, certainly the price signals need to be better if they want more milk, that's for sure. I can't see us producing any more milk next year, this this year, sorry, yeah. And if we're at that critical mass now of production, I guess the other question is, that do we have the farmers and are there enough farms producing milk to, to meet that demand as it continues? Um, that's becoming critical. There's, there's continuation of people leaving the industry. We've held milk supply because other farmers have managed to produce a bit more, but I'm not sure about ongoing. I think a lot of farms are pretty near capacity. No, I'm sure there are people out there with the opportunity to produce more, but I'm not sure that uh, it's significant enough to take up the people that are still leaving. If people are leaving the industry, does that mean that that profit share uh, that is low will be redistributed among the remaining farmers and, and they may see an increase, or is it likely to, to remain as it stands? That's a difficult question to answer. I think it'll only give better pricing if that milk doesn't come from somewhere else like if somebody else doesn't start producing more yeah it's a tough one that but i'm thinking milk production could go down if the price signals are not there to take up what could be could be a tough autumn wa farmers dairy council president ian noakes and he was speaking to andrew chounding it is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Let's get an update from the newsroom. Here's Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. The Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union has described as disappointing Alcoa's decision to shut down production at its Quinana Alumina refinery. The closure is expected to affect about 1,000 workers, including contractors. The AMWU says the union will be meeting with Alcoa to discuss training and redeployment opportunities. The Premier, Roger Cook, says he's committed to supporting affected workers. New data shows rental price increases in WA have outpaced the rest of the country with median rents increasing 20% in the last 12 months. The prop track data shows the median cost of renting a house in WA is now $600 a week. Unit rental prices surged 19.6% across the year to $550. And a second person has been charged over the murder of a man in the southwest. 68-year-old Raymond Smith was found dead on the outskirts of Greenbushes last week after going missing in December. Last week, 35-year-old Kevin Allen Craig Potter from Bridgetown was charged with his murder. Today, police have charged a 41-year-old man from Boyan up with murder. He's set to appear in the Bunbury Magistrates Court today. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. And going into a little more detail about the Alcoa story, Jonathan mentioned uh, shortly here on the Country Hour, the Premier Roger Cook just uh, giving his thoughts on that announcement made earlier today that Alcoa will be cutting production and also workers 
at its Quinana refinery. We'll get to that shortly. And just before one, it's off to Mushe again today for the results of the sheep market. And numbers up significantly today. Just over 9,000 sheep and lambs were yarded, and that's up more than 3,000 head from the last sale of last year. Terry Birkin is going to go through those details for you. It is 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour and it's time to head off to the Bureau of Meteorology and catch up with Joey Rawson. Now, Joey, you mentioned yesterday about this monsoon trough which could turn into a low, which could turn into a cyclone. So let's start there because that's a really interesting part. Where is it tracking at the moment? What does it look like? Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting, Belinda. Um, yesterday we were dealing with one potential system, but uh, today we're dealing with three potential systems and they're all developing along this monsoon trough. So um, we've got one that, that's... Um, we're looking at it developing somewhere in the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf. Um, we have a moderate rating from Saturday, so that's about a 25% chance of the tropical low developing into a tropical cyclone. Um, uh, so that's one of the systems. There's another one in the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, which has uh, just a low chance of something developing next week. And, and then there's another one um, near Cocos Island, which is only uh, a low chance of developing into a tropical cyclone. But the one in the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf is quite interesting because um, if the system remains over water, it, it may develop into that tropical cyclone. But even if it does or doesn't, uh, and it's, it drifts over, whether it drifts over Northern Territory or the Kimberley, it's going to produce significant rain. So um, the main message is uh, wherever that system drifts, because it is really slow moving, and at this stage there's a fair bit of uncertainty on where it's going to go, um, it, it's going to drop a lot of rain. So um, when I talk about a lot of rain, you know, 200 millimetres, possible 300 millimetres out of this system. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's significant. And as I said yesterday, keep an eye on uh, the Bureau's seven-day tropical cyclone forecast. It provides a graphical image on where the system um, is going to be in the next week. Now, yesterday I was thinking from what you were saying, it looked likely that that you know, top end of the Kimberley could get some of the, the rain that you're talking about there. But is it more likely that it's going to drift across the Northern Territory at this point? Is it, can you make that call at this stage, Joey? Um, it's really difficult to make that call, but the latest track that we're looking at kind of splits the the border of Northern Territory and WA, but there's heaps of uncertainty in it at the moment. And um, yeah, there's certainly the risk of that Northern part of the Kimberley, the Kununurra, the Columbaroo, Argyle area, getting that significant rain, but also that significant rain falling through the Northern Territory area through, through to Darwin. So um, yeah, ho- hopefully our guidance uh, starts to firm up over the next few days so we can pinpoint where we're going to get this significant rain, Belinda. And the timing of that, the day, is that over the yeah. weekend? Yeah, it's over the weekend. Uh, we're hoping to see a tropical low develop later this week, so just a, a weak tropical low, 
And then um, over the weekend, that's when we'll get more confidence once we've actually got a tropical low that, that has developed. So, um, yeah, over the weekend and into early next week, we'll certainly have more confidence. All right. So that's the one. What about the other two? What are the chances of that, you know, delivering any strong winds or rain to Western Australia? Yeah, so the other two, um, the other one is in the Gulf of Carbons area, so that's not going to impact Western Australia, uh, certainly Northern Territory or the northern parts of Queensland. And the other one is well and truly out in the ocean. It's located uh, more around Cocos Island, and that's only a low chance of developing into something, but could produce a bit of rain over Cocos Island. All right. Thank you so much for going through those details. So let's come back to today and take a look across the state. And I mean, pretty much hot conditions from top to bottom, but let's start in the north as soon as we started there. How's it looking this afternoon? Yeah, you're right. It is hot. There's, most of the state is above 40 uh, for today. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really hot through a broad area. So we do have that heat wave warning continuing for both hot days and, and hot nights, Blinda. Um, but as far as rainfall and the thunderstorms go, we have had some thunderstorms through the southern goldfields and southeast coastal district. They've eased over the last few hours um, and we're starting to see the development of some storms through the eastern parts of the north interior and through the Kimberley and also through the Pilbara. So that will build up during the day and you know, through parts of the northern Kimberley, we can get some pretty good falls out of the storms. We've had some falls around 60 millimetres during the last 24 hours, so we can't rule out falls around that level for this afternoon. But through the Pilbara and interior, the storms won't produce as much rain. So um, that story is going to continue uh, basically for the next four days, but the main activity is certainly going to be attached to where that tropical low moves and also develops. And then moving into the southwest land division, what can you see for this afternoon and the rest of the week? Yeah, so not a lot for this afternoon. We do have a, a fire weather warning uh, for the a couple of fire weather districts in the central wheat belt, um, but there's not a lot of activity, uh, just a little bit of cloud along the south coast. Um, however, we do have a trough that's uh, going to start producing thunderstorms through the goldfields tomorrow, but then it's going to contract more into the southwest land division for Thursday and start producing a little bit of rain with those uh, thunderstorms driven from that trough. So by the time we get to Thursday, we're looking at about uh, 5 to 10 millimetres um, through far eastern parts of the southwest land division. But once we get to Friday, it contracts further to the west coast. Um, the main rain could fall through the central wheat belt and Great Southern all the way down to the south coast. And falls could be a little bit better through that area, 20 to 40 millimetres possible. Um, so areas through like Southern Cross and uh, even Kalgoorlie will be on the um, eastern boundary of that and Katanning and Wajan and Lake Race. Uh, they could all receive some decent falls if a thunderstorm develops over you and um, stays around. And then once we get to the weekend, that stuff is still through the eastern parts of the southwest land division, but it starts to contract east and weakens a little bit. But still the potential for 15 or 20 millimetres 
through the eastern parts of Belinda for Saturday. Mm, that'll be tidy for some. And the yeah. recap of the warnings today. Yeah, so we've got the heatwave warning uh, that covers uh, a broad area of the state. Um, so that is continuing. And we also have the fire weather warning for the Croon and Lockwood fire weather districts. And we have a really good strong sea breeze all the way up the west coast. So basically from Augusta, um, stretching up to Exmouth for 20 to 30 knot sea breeze. Joe, thank you so much for going through those details. 19 to 1. Michelle Stanley in the studio to go through the rainfall figures. Yeah, in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, just looking at totals over 5 millimetres, of course, most of the action was in the Kimberley. Charnley River had 46, Dampier Downs Airstrip 5, Debesa 8, Diggers Rest 37, El Cuesto 65. And Emma Gorge had 56. The waterfalls there will be pumping. Um, Katana had nine. Kingston Rest, 31. Kananara, a few different totals at the airport, 47. At the checkpoint, 62. And at the research station, 50. Lake Argyle Resort had 43. Liveringa Station, 14. Mount Barnett, 49. Mount Krause, 21. Dampier da- sorry, Napier Downs had 12. Nicholson, 33. Udiala, 8. Winjana Gorge, 25. Wyndham Aero had 11 and Yulmbu had 8. In the Pilbara, just one isolated fall at Yarri Station. Um, they had 35 mils. I sent Annabelle a quick text because I thought that's got to be enjoyable and she said it was a wild storm last night, quite thin so not a lot of the place got it but it was really lovely to have that 35 mils at Yarri. So happy days there. Um, hasn't been much in the Pilbara for a while. Uh, nothing over two millimetres in the south of the state, though, Bell. So that's it for rainfall. ABC Radio, fire ban information. So due to the risk of a fire, a total fire ban has been issued for today, Tuesday the 9th of January, for shires in the Midwest. That includes Bruce Rock, Kellerberan, Meriden, Mount Marshall, Muckenbudden, Narrambeen, Nungarin, Training, Westonia and Yulgarn. During a total fire ban, you must not light fires for cooking or camping, carry out hot work such as grinding and welding, or go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive or quad bike. And the Shire of Yulgarn has also issued a vehicle movement ban today. If you'd like more detailed information, including zones and other restrictions, as well as the lifting of harvest bans, vehicle movement bans, please contact your local government. It's your responsibility to check with your local government for any specific restrictions in place. So just repeating, there are total fire bans in place for parts of the Midwest today. That's Tuesday the 9th of January, and that vehicle movement ban in Yulgarn. There is more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban and a map of the affected areas on the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au. Thanks, Belle. Michelle, thank you for that 17 to 1. And WA Premier Roger Cook says the curtailment of production at a major WA alumina refinery is not a closure. Earlier today, Alcoa announced it will halt production at its Quinana refinery later this year, cutting over 750 workers. In a statement, the company says the curtailment was due to a variety of factors, including the plant's age, operating costs and the current market conditions. WA Premier Roger Cook says the government was aware of the issues at Alcoa's Quinana site. 
We've obviously had extensive conversations with Alcoa over the last uh, six months of my time, but also prior to that um, as the Minister for State Development. We're aware of their evolving issues. Um, I spoke with the Vice President of Alcoa Australia last night. Um, and he explained to me that his view was that the board was, would be imminently making an announcement with regards to the future of the, um, the Quinana site. Is there a silver lining to the closure in that it will ease demand for, for gas? Well, if you're going to find a silver lining, uh, that might be it. The undertakings they gave to me was that, that this is a curtailment, not a closure, and that they remain open to the idea of what goes on at that particular site. What they did explain, and we all know, is that our, that is one of Alcoa's oldest uh, refineries uh, in terms of their global operations. It employs uh, particularly um, old technology, which challenges the commerciality of that particular refinery. But it's an important part of their asset base, and they'll continue to make sure that they look after it and also continue to use the, uh, the loading facilities um, in, uh, in the port that they have there. All, all the uh, Alcoa's obligations and their entitlements remain under the, the, um, the current state agreement. So they'll continue, need to continue to operate the, uh, the, the slurry ponds. They'll need to continue to ensure that they maintain environmental oversight and stewardship of those particular facilities. And they'll need to continue to make sure that they look after the site in Quinana. So uh, they're not disappearing. They remain anchor tenants in the Quinana Industrial Strip and will need to continue to make sure that they uh, um, meet all their obligations under the state agreement. Premier Roger Cook speaking with the media today, 14 to 1. Steve McCartney is the State Secretary for the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. He says rumours of the Alcoa shutdown had been going around for the past week. Uh, we were informed earlier today by uh, the management of Alcoa Quinana that there's going to be a shutdown. Our members have been talking about this. Uh, there's rumours been going around about this for the last week or so. So I suppose that uh, eliminates the uncertainty in this. Um, so now we know that they are going to be closing this down in three stages. Uh, the first stage will be starting uh, in the start of the next quarter. Uh, and then uh, by the end of this year, uh, they expect not to be taking any more product. To us, that says that this is going to be a, a closed down and we'll be meeting with the management uh, on Monday and, re and going back to our members to have a discussion about uh, a few of the important things that we need to make sure of is that they understand that they've got good union agreements with entitlements. So we want to make sure that that company, the Alcoa, uh, looks after them and ensures they fulfil those entitlements. We also want to talk to them about transition and the fact that they're going to be transitioning from these jobs into other work uh, and also about retention. So we're going to be talking about those three things to the, to the company, um, trying to get as much information as we can going back into the future so we can talk to our members, give them some clarity about where they're going and uh, start having some real discussions about the next three stages and how we go through those stages. How disappointing is the decision? Very disappointing, especially for the new people that have worked at Alcoa that have just started, got a full-time job in Alcoa down that area. Um, we're hoping that uh, inside that... Uh, transition period, there'll be some opportunities for workers to go to other places inside the inside Alcoa. Uh, and um, what we want to make sure of is, one, their entitlements are paid uh, uh, and secured. 
to that they get an education if they want to start looking at transitioning to the new economy, that they get that education before they leave, similar to what they're doing in Collie. You know, in Collie, workers that work in Collie are getting a, a chance to ed- re-educate themselves for new work while they're still working at Collie. And that's uh, what we're going to be talking to Alcoa about. We want to make sure that any workers that need training for new jobs in the future, into the new economy, get that while they're working. And get that time off while they're working. So that the impact doesn't hit them. So, How much of a challenge will it be for these workers to find other jobs? Well, um, uh, the trades people, there, there's a, a shortage of trades jobs, so there's a good chance we might be able to get those people some trades jobs with some retraining and some upskilling. And uh, the people that are non-trades and operators, uh, we're the ones we're talking about that really need some support about getting uh, some training into the new economy, especially if there's no transfer positions for them inside our car. Are you hearing anything or do you have any concerns about Alcoa's other sites in WA? Not at this stage. Uh, there's no discussion about, there has been no discussion about shutting any of those other sites down inside Western Australia. Uh, we do know for the last eight years or so there's been a discussion about uh, Quanana and its longevity. Uh, and I believed that if they were really going to keep Quanana going into the future, they would have spent money on it about 10 years ago. Steve McCartney is the State Secretary for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union and he was speaking to the media earlier today. Ten minutes to one. We're sticking with resources because 140 workers at a Kimberley nickel mine will be made redundant and stood down immediately due to falling nickel prices. Panamamic Resources made the announcement about its Savannah nickel mine in the East Kimberley, 60 kilometres northeast of Halls Creek. The company went into voluntary administration in December and at the time said the mine retained sufficient cash for administrators to continue operating the mine on a trade-on basis. But last night, an ASX announcement confirmed operations will be suspended over the coming days with the majority of staff on site made redundant. Malcolm Edwards is the president of the Shire of Halls Creek. He says the town hadn't actually received much economic benefit from the mine. Very little, actually. I, I can't even remember, actually, it might be wrong, but I can't remember actually meeting with anyone from from that organisation or that mine, but they didn't have much to do with uh, Halls Creek at all. And only 60k out of town relatively close on Kimberley standards, do you think that they could have had a lot more to do with the community? Yes, I think so. I mean, other mining companies have actually met with us. Browns Range has met on a number of occasions with us and also Rare X has met with us. So, um, yeah, we haven't had that same engagement with um, Savannah Nickel. And Savannah Nickel is undergoing their voluntary administration process at the moment. Of course, they could go into recapitalisation and and reboot from there, or another option that they're looking into is a prospective buyer taking over the mine. When it comes to somebody new taking over that mine, what would you like to see them do to engage with you as the Halls Creek Shire? Yeah, we'd like also to have a meeting with them, and the same as the, um, and we could probably have an MOU, so mm-hmm. sit down with them and talk about, and, and the, the, the thing with the pressing would be local jobs, so... Uh, Let's hope that uh, we have better engagement with, uh, from, from now on with mine if, if it starts up again. Because if something like Savannah Nickel was running on a fully fly-in, fly-out 
operation and bringing with them their food and their workers and everything and not engaging with local community businesses for that and local jobs for that. Do you think that there's an opportunity there with with a mine that is so close to town to to have local jobs in amongst those FIFO jobs? Yes, I'd like to see that, yep, obviously. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, whatever happens for the future of the mine, if someone takes over, we'd like to engage with them. President of the Halls Creek Shire, Malcolm Edwards, with Alice Marshall. Seven minutes to one. Volatility in the lithium market could see a significant slowdown in WA mining operations. Just last week, the Northern Territory's newest mine, Core Lithium, announced it would stop operations at its Finnis site just outside of Darwin, saying a drop in lithium prices forced the company's hand. Core Lithium will continue to process stockpiled ore at the site, but up to 150 people involved in mining operations are expected to lose their jobs. Commodity analyst Romano Salatena says the lithium market has turned quickly. Look, we, we saw some real heat come into lithium price. We saw the spodumene price, which is the price for downstream, or sorry, for upstream um, uh, source material for lithium carbon and lithium hydroxide. So we saw the lithium um, spodumene price sort of rally, um, you know, way past uh, what was reasonable to the six to eight thousand US per ton mark. And since that time, we've seen the price retrace by over eighty percent. And, you know, some sales have been reported as low as uh, US 1100 to, to US $1,200 per tonne. So, you know, that enormous volatility has impacted uh, the market um, and, and hence uh, the, the move by Core Lithium most recently. So did too many resource companies just look at that high price for lithium, go out and dig up too much, and that's what's led to the price crash? Yeah, look, certainly. I think... I think you know, the, the market signals were too aggressive. Um, and I think the market has been surprised at how quickly Australian hard rock miners have been able to respond. You know, I think for those, for Australian miners, we're not surprised because, you know, we understand the capabilities and expertise in, in the industry and infrastructure and so forth. But I think globally, I think there was a surprise at how quickly you know, spodumene um, production was able to respond. I mean, you know, as a simple uh, stat, you know, just over 50% now of all spodumene's coming out of WA. And and we're talking that that's transpired over the last sort of three to four years. So, you know, the aggressive price signals have um, generated enormous supply-side response. And because it is a shallow market, a new market, an immature market, um, which doesn't have a lot of depth to it, uh, you know, supply and and demand changes have a very pronounced impact on the price. The current low price of lithium, is it putting pressure on other Australian lithium miners, especially those ones in Western Australia? Are any of those at risk of shutting mining operations too? They're not at risk. In our numbers, they're not at risk of shutting mining operations. What I think we're going to see is a slowdown in the um, speed at which future uh, expansion was planned. For example, Pilbara has just moved to the P680 phase. They're looking to move to P1000, which means they'll produce a million tonne per annum of spod. Um, so what I think we'll see there is, you know, there, there won't be the same 
urgency um, to hit those timelines in terms of bringing new production to market. I think we'll see that slow down. I think the second thing is that we'll also see uh, a number of these companies now refocus on cost. You know, to date, it's been get any staff, anyone you can, any price on site. I think now the, the spodumene price is sending signals to say, well, we now need to make sure we've got the right staffing levels, you know, we've got the right staff. Uh, we can now be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, circumspect and um, and considered in terms of how we how we continue to hire and grow and, um, and get the right people on board. So I think there's going to take a bit of heat out of the labour market. That in time will reduce labour rates. We, we tend to see labour rates don't reduce much, but we but what we do see is they might have a period where they plateau for for a while. Um, so I think some of the costs will start to come out, and that'll be their focus now. They they won't go for growth at any cost. They'll now really start to refocus on on getting the um, their costs down. Romano Salatena, he's a commodity analyst at Katana Asset Management, and he was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. Three minutes to one. Let's head to the market now. And numbers were up significantly at the Muche sheep sale today. Just over 9,000 sheep and lambs were yarded, and that's up more than 3,000 head from the last sale of last year. Terry Birkin is there at Muche. Terry, what was the quality like today? Hi, Belinda. A good lineup of sheep and lambs with quality presenting across the yarding for the first sale this year. The market gained ground with a strong start, but backed off slightly as the sale continued. Heavy lambs, along with mutton and rams, saw improved rates, with all categories gaining four to six dollars a head. The buying gallery was well supported from abattoir and feedlot buyers, along with several paddock buyers. Store lambs started at five dollars, up to seventy-nine dollars, with longer legs, while light lambs were selling from sixty-two to one hundred and one dollars a head. Trade lambs returned seventy-eight to one hundred and twenty-eight dollars, and heavy lambs realised one hundred and forty dollars a head. Well-bred merino weather hoggets were offered and values were reflected in pricing, selling to a top of $66, while merino ewe hoggets made $25 to $50, and the best Dorper hoggets returned a top of $82 a head. Bony ewes ranged from $5 to $21, medium ewes from $15 to $29, and heavy ewes sold to a top of $46 a head. The odd pen of good quality crossbred rams were in demand from groziers for breeding, paying up to $120 a head, but for the majority of rams, the market did improve, with most selling from 10 to $40 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for that. Just going over those figures again at the yarding at Muche today, 4,664 lambs were penned for sale and 4,394 sheep. So a total of 9,058, up just over 3,000 from the last sale of last year. A minute away from the news at one and just repeating the lead story today, some big news because it's the first time in 14 years that a shipment of Australian sheep has been exported to Saudi Arabia. The WA-based company Emanuel Exports recently loaded 5,000 sheep, so just a small shipment, onto the El Masilla at Fremantle and that shipment arrived at Saudi Arabia port of Damam Port just over the weekend. Great to talk to you today on the ABC right across Western Australia. We'll do it all again tomorrow. Right now on the ABC, it is time for the latest news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.